Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. The Chief Medical Officer Summit is a conference addressing the unique needs of chief medical officers in biotech, and it's celebrating its 10th anniversary year this April 4th and 5th in Boston. And I'm delighted to share with you one of the featured sessions from the 2021 CMO Summit with Dr. Joe Viney, President and CEO of Seismic Therapeutics. So Dr. Viney is an entrepreneurial scientist and experienced biotech executive, and she's a self-described drug hunter, and she has successfully advanced a number of new therapies into the clinic. So she discusses her journey as a founder to IPOing and acquisition. And this session was moderated by Dr. Zane Kazem, co-founder and CMO of Finch Therapeutics. So for more information about the 10th annual CMO Summit, please visit theconferenceforum.org. And again, that's theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast. Thanks, Joe, for joining us. This is really, really exciting to have a chance to speak with you. And the Pandian story is an incredible one. Um, uh, but and as, as folks may know, uh, uh, Joe is the co-founder, uh, president, and CSO of Panion Therapeutics, who's gone through an incredible story over the last five years, which I'm sure she'll share with us from the origin to the IPO and to the, to the acquisition. But before we go down that pathway uh, and those chapters, Joe, I'd love to tell us a little bit about your, your story getting into the industry and some of your background leading up to the, to the origin story of Pandian. Yeah, thanks very much, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm a mucosal immunologist by training. I um, had really not very much interest in science at all in high school, as I'm taking you all the way back. But with the British education system, I ended up being shunted into the sciences because I was pretty useless at the humanities. So I don't really have this glorious aspiration to have been a scientist since I was a kid. Um, but actually, I really want to just talk about one transformational experience that I had and really highlight the importance of encouraging um, the younger generation to think about internships. I was uh, an undergrad and I was lucky enough to work in the pediatric gastroenterology um, department of St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London for a year. And my very first morning, I got to witness um, an endoscopy. And uh, that was the moment that I then decided I wanted to work in um, clinical research, medical research, discovery research, and think about is there a way to develop new medicines that could help people suffering, and, and in this case it was kids um, with inflammatory bowel disease. So that started my journey. Um, it, it then prompted me after getting my PhD back in that same pediatric gastroenterology lab um, to think about a career, um, an academic career actually was really where I was uh, headed towards. But after a postdoc um, in London, um, I decided to uh, come to the US to uh, get my BTA badge or Been to America badge. And it really helps securing funding um, when you're back in the UK if you've got that BTA badge. Um, and I was, I'd set myself up for a number of uh, interviews with academic institutions in California. I'd wanted to um, uh, look at California, I'd never been, and, and figured that would be a good destination to go. And I was lucky enough to have someone suggest that I go and take a look at Genentech. And I was like, I have no idea what Genentech is, I don't know what biotech is. And, um, and I was like, well, they're gonna pay my flight, so that would be a good reason to go and give a seminar. Um, and I turned up and I was completely blown away by the collaborative environment and the teamwork and the um, collegiality of all of the individuals 
skills there. And so I ended up doing a postdoc at Genentech. I was going to get my BTA badge there and head back to the UK. Um, well, here I am 20, I think it's 26, 28 years later, um, haven't made it back to the UK and have completely fallen in love with being in the biotech industry. So. Jumping through a lot of different hoops, I moved to Seattle, worked at Immunex, really got involved in biologics drug discovery. Um, we were acquired by Amgen, and I added small molecule drug discovery to my repertoire, always in the inflammation research therapeutic area, now thinking about diseases beyond just IBD, but the broad array of autoimmune diseases. Um, and then after Amgen, I moved to Boston. I joined Biogen to head up the immunology research therapeutic area, and was there for a number of years before um, a shift in therapeutic area focused more towards neurology. And it was that that made me think, hmm, am I um, really enjoying what I'm doing in a big company? I'd ended up with a, a massive organization under me. Um, I spent my day looking at PowerPoints, and no one wanted to listen to my suggestions about what experiment to do next. And I found it a little bit frustrating. So I um, pulled the Band-Aid off and decided to go whole hog to a startup company and uh, formed Pandian. I was the first employee. Um, it was a really wonderful experience. Um, we didn't have any um, founding science or founding academic um, uh, uh, investigators. Um, I really just spent my first few months with a white paper exercise in a conference room that I wasn't paying rent for, but was very kindly allowed to squat in um, an empty conference room in Kendall Square. And, uh, and that was the genesis of Pandium. We really came up with some ideas. We had this lofty goal of trying to modulate the immune system locally at the site of inflammation. So that was a number of years ago. Um, and uh, so really wrote a number of provisional patents those first few months and uh, went out fundraising. And, and I think as Zane alluded to, um, really had a very fabulous experience of raising our A round. We stumbled upon a drug unexpectedly about 18 months before our original plans. So that's the good and the bad. Um, the good is that we stumbled upon a drug and that's good for patients. The bad is that we were completely unprepared and, uh, and actually had no clinical organization or regulatory organization or anything to do with how to run a clinical trial in the, um, in the company. And so we leveraged a lot of um, CROs, a lot of uh, colleagues, former colleagues of mine to uh, help us get to the clinic. Um, we were, 2020 was a momentous year for us, so we dosed our first patient. Um, we raised our Series B. The pandemic hit right around when we were closing our Series B, um, so that caused a little bit of a wobble. Um, I also moved the labs out of incubator space into our own space um, the last week of March of 2020, so that was a challenge um, during the pandemic. And, uh, and we also were embarking on the IPO process um, at the time, and so we were one of the first companies um, in that first wave of pandemic IPOs, and we took the company public in July of 2020. Um, so I thought that was a bit of a busy six months and uh, I was ready to sort of sit back and enjoy life and, um, and then we started some conversations um, with Merck who ultimately ended up acquiring uh, Pandian at the beginning of this year. So um, I've just finished um, integrating people and programs into Merck and uh, as of, I think it's, what was October 1st, what, so that's 14 days ago, um, I started a new company. So um, excited to do it all over again.
a wonderful kind of overview of the the journey in, in a, a rapid fire way. And I'd love to, uh, first of all, surprise that uh, in, in, as a gastroenterologist, we have many people visit our endoscopy suite. Most of them pass out for the first time. I did pass out. Did you as well? <laughs> Both inspired and actually passed out. It's impressive. <laughs> I was okay until I was looking down the uh, the teaching aid and the biopsy happened and it felt like blood was shooting up into my face and that was it. I was gone. <laughs> Very common. <laughs> um, but I'd love to kind of double click it maybe to that, that origin story a little bit more. And, um, you know, a lot of CMOs think about uh, starting their own adventure and um, love to learn any kind of lessons you have from starting that. And as a white pepper, a paper exercise, not as an you know, in licensed product or, um, or working, as you said, with an academic collaborator where you bring another product from, from an academic center. Tell me a little bit more about how that journey was and, and what were some of the challenges that and any advice you would have for, for CMOs and they want to start their own adventure up. Yeah, so I would just say, um, you know, talk to a lot of people and um, figure out who is going to be helpful along the journey. I have to say that when I first started thinking about startups, I wasn't really contemplating um, doing my own thing. I actually thought I would um, join a very small company, sort of with five people or so. But I found myself a little bit struggling with um, doing someone else's science. I really hadn't done someone else's science. Um, when I was in big companies, I'd really planned my portfolio and pipeline um, on my own. And it was really a bit strange to be having these conversations and delivering on someone else's vision. Um, and so I, I, you know, through the journey of talking to various um, um, VCs around Boston, and we're lucky that there are a lot of them here, um, it, was, it was through those conversations that I uh, met uh, Alan Crane at Polaris Partners, who was, um, ended up being a co-founder and chairman of the board of Pandian, and actually also of my current um, uh, company. And, um, and it was really that. It was finding someone who had the sh a vision that um, I could share and aspire to, and they could share my vision and aspire to. And, um, and so it felt, a, it, it f looking back, I don't know if I was um, ignorant about not knowing what I didn't know, but um, sometimes ignorance is bliss and um, and and so really embarked on that journey but what I really learned the take-home lesson from that is you know you've worked with a lot of people in your career and don't be afraid to call them up I spent my first um, well still now but intensively that first six months calling anyone and everyone I knew from simple things like you know how do where do we register the company um, what do I do for health insurance how do I write an offer letter what do I pay someone because having worked in a big company I actually didn't really know any of that stuff I'd always called my HR business partner for example um, and I found it really refreshing that there were so many people who were willing to help um, and I hadn't appreciated that and it took me a little while to jump into that um, but once I'd realized that this network exists this community exists amongst all of us um, it's really um, helpful and actually as I mentioned we sort of ran to the clinic a little bit quicker than we thought and didn't have any manufacturing people, lots of things. That was where it really was um, important for me to leverage um, previous um, colleagues of mine. And everyone gives so much time. It's so that's the, the lesson that I learned along the way. You know, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and ask someone. Um, people are very, very willing to give advice. And then I'll also flip it and say that also means that we all then have an obligation to pass on advice when um, people call us. So. Um, um, it's sort of a, a really nice uh, established um, collegiality that we have in the startup world particularly. Yeah. 
to so tell me a little bit more about the culture at the beginning and how that changed or stayed the same and how maybe you've helped influence and shape that in the early days. I think in big companies, it's harder to change you know, the Titanic, but maybe smaller ships are easier to move. And t tell me a little bit about your journey kind of with respect from a cultural perspective from a company at a very small size. Yeah, so, um, so hiring is obviously really <laughs> important because that determines the culture. And so when you're the first employee, you have an outsized influence over who, who joins the company. Um, but actually, I was really intentional about my hiring. Um, I'm a big fan of diversity, and obviously, being a woman in science, there's you know often we're um, smaller in number, and I'm glad to see that actually we're probably about 50/50 in this room, so it's very refreshing. Um, but I spent um, st have spent a lot of my career outside of work being an advocate for diversity, and so it really gave me an opportunity from the get-go to um, add diversity or make sure we were diverse as we built the team. And um, you know, so there's there's this sort of usual um, front and center uh, types of diversity, but I felt it was really important to have diversity of thinking as well. And um, so my first two hires are completely opposite people. So I have one sort of high intensity list maker who delivers you know, everything in five minutes. And I had one um, individual who's a 24 hour thinker. So I am much more aligned with the former and much less aligned with the latter. Um, but I really felt it was important to have someone who spends 24 hours thinking about things to keep all of us on the straight and narrow. And so that's how we started with the first two hires I made. Um, and so it's not straightforward. You know, it, you know, I was week two and having conversations about how do we communicate, you know, sending emails with 40 lines in it of, you know, a big diatribe is not gonna help someone who doesn't read a big email and needs 24 hours to think about it. So even from the get-go, we spend a lot of time thinking, how do we communicate? Um, what is important to us? And, um, and just sort of establishing that open environment, I think really helped us build a culture of trust, a culture of inclusivity, um, and uh, all comers have uh, felt welcome um, at the company. And so I do think it's important to be mindful as you're building the team about not filling it with too many people from your previous network who are very much likely to be like you because that's why you maintain contact with them. It's really important to go out and, uh, and look elsewhere. But the other thing that I think just comes along with me is like, I can't take myself seriously. I have to have a lot of fun at work. And so most of the company has a really good sense of humor. So I, I guess we're not that diverse. We didn't have very many miserable people at the company. <laughs> Fair enough. I think it's probably not the key to success, miserable people. But, um, and, and are there things that like, really surprised you? Because I, I think you've, you've had a very kind of rich tapestry of kind of a, a journey up to that point, larger farmer mostly. But what kind of surprised you the most about kind of that early stage type company, the startup off the ground that maybe in, in uh, uh, hindsight, that was 2020, but with the with the the the, the experience now, having said that, it's like okay, that was actually a pretty big surprise for me along the way. Yeah, I think that um, the biggest surprise I think was um, learning that I had to be confident about making a decision, um, and I think that was sort of the. Um, 
baggage that I carried from large company, you always have very large teams and there's always the expert. And then I'm sitting around the table, I'm like, actually we don't have an expert, so who's gonna make this decision? Um, and and I was nervous about it and it took a little while to get comfortable. Um, you know, we're all in this business because we're risk takers. We all think about what is it that we can do to take something novel um, into patients that can potentially make a difference. But I hadn't really experienced um, that um, that, uh, that sort of confidence-shaking moments when it's like, have I actually made um, the right decision? And so I think that is that was the biggest surprise to me that I thought I knew how to do drug discovery, and I did in a big company with a big team, but I really didn't know how to do that so much in a small small company. So it sort of gets back to that was my aha moment in calling you know friends, relatives, anyone who knew anything about anything, and making sure I really listened to the advice. And and actually one of the things that I also learned is there's well it, it wasn't revelationary. There are always lots of different ways to do things, um, but trying to make sure that I carved out a sensible path and didn't listen too much to one or other piece of advice. So um, just the 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 pace of activities means that you have to really be thinking on your feet. I thought that um, I had worked in a fast-paced environment um, in a big company, but in a small company, it's like every day there's there's something different. And and even the trajectory of Pandy, and I, you know, I really look back and I think, wow, um, I, it felt like it was a few months and it was four years, but we did do quite a lot um, in those four years. So. Absolutely, and maybe we'll we'll move from the origin story more into the to the IPO story and. Um, Obviously, as you alluded to, like a very, very unique time to be IPOing. Um, tell us a little bit more about kind of the lead up to that. Uh, and, and how that, that journey went for you from, a, from an IPO perspective. Yeah, so um, so sort of I'll, I'll start off by winding back to 2019. And so um, we were just about to start our Series B fundraising conversations in the fall of 2019. Um, and, uh, and it was, you know, it was the sort of traditional time we were looking to an election um, the following year. And so when you look at the financial markets, you know, most people don't IPO um, in the year of an election and maybe the first quarter of 2020 would have been open. So we were sort of sitting back thinking, well, we'll start our Series B conversations and we need to raise enough to get us through 2020, fund our clinical trial and get us on further. Well, um, that was all fine. I think it was about um, early November when we started seeing that actually the, the, the window might be open for um, an IPO. And so we're like, well, we weren't really ready and we couldn't pull this off in uh, late 20. 2019, but it sort of made us um, sort of perk our ears up a little bit, um, and I'm glad that we did, even though we were, we were um, fairly confident that we wouldn't be able to pull it off um, in uh, such a short time frame. By the end of Q1 um, 2020, we did start, you know, getting ourselves a little bit more organized. Um, and then the IPO window sort of opened, and then it stayed open, and then it looked like it was staying open even longer, and so um, that made us accelerate our prep even more. Um, we were pretty far along into our Series B fundraising, and I think that helped because when you're out on the road and you're telling your story, it's very easy to transition. And you know, with the um, B round being made up of a lot of crossover investors, it made logical sense to go into the IPO. Um, but we did have a wobbly when um, the country sort of shut down in the middle of March. It did make um, our investors and us pause a little bit around the B. We did have a lot of discussions, and you know, and there were a few changes that 
were sort of a reaction of like, we don't know what's going to happen and if the country's going to close down for a couple of weeks, um, which is what I think I thought back in 2020, we would just be home for with my kids doing homeschool for, or home from school for a couple of weeks before we would return to um, normality. Um, it was it was a bit strange. And then we jumped straight into the day uh, that, I think it was Governor Baker closed um, the, or, or suggested a stay-at-home mandate, um, was the day before we had our Banker Bake Off. And so um, we were doing our Banker Bake Off by Zoom, one of the first multiple Zoom meetings that we had. It was the day that Zoom crashed because too many people were using Zoom, so very early in the pandemic. So we were all learning. Um, we, you know, looking back now, how we, would, how we had set things up isn't how you would set them up now. I think we've learned a lot over the last year. I think actually it's really refreshing that we can have a lot of our conversations now um, by Zoom. It's much less travel. It's much more focused. Um, you get a much um, better attention and um, dialogue with people um, when you're not rushing around, flying um, from here to there and catching taxis. Um, uptown in New York and downtown and across town and always being late everywhere. So, um, but it was strange when we were doing this. And we're like, can we really IPO like in a pandemic? And um, do you really do this by Zoom? Um, and so, you know, now a year or so later, it seems pretty obvious. Um, at the time, we, I don't think we thought we were charting new territories. I think we were just trying to figure out how are we going to do this? And we're sort of on this journey. But we were on this journey with the bankers as well, um, because we were all learning um, how to do it. Um, I'm thrilled to see that there's been so much activity still continuing. Um, that IPO window didn't close with the election, and it hasn't closed since. It's um, really refreshing to see so much interest and excitement in our industry. And I think, you know, if there's one lesson that has been learned um, from the pandemic is that the general public can be educated about what we do. And the more that we can talk about um, the new therapies that we're bringing, I think it's the better for everyone. Absolutely. Do you think that post in a post-pandemic world, um, uh, whatever that looks like, that this virtual, uh, you know, test the waters IPO roadshow will likely stay, or do you think it'll revert back to a, a more going uptown and downtown in a taxi cab in New York? Yeah, I don't know. I have to say that. Um, I, uh, as an introvert, I quite enjoyed being able to do everything from my basement um, on Zoom. Um, I'm <laughs> um, so my personal wish is that we can do all of uh, a lot of these conversations by Zoom. I'm just getting ready now to um, start having conversations um, with my new company. And so intentionally, I'm setting things up by Zoom. But we've had a couple of um, groups who have said, let's meet in person. And, um, and so it does take more planning. I mean, even though we all live in Boston, you know, if you want to go and um, you know pitch for an hour it's pretty much three hours out of your day by the time you travel somewhere pitch and then go back as opposed to can you set up zoom meetings with just um, short breaks in between so so I don't know where we're going to end up um, I know what I would prefer <laughs> but I think that um, you know I'm probably a little bit more at the mercy of uh, who th what the investors preference is fair uh, any any kind of lessons for CMOs to think of from an IPO process that you know many have, but are many private companies that are just thinking about that or first-time CMOs that haven't gone through that process? Any kind of the biggest surprise for you, the biggest learned lesson as you went through the process um, of, of 
Yeah, I was um, I was really surprised um, at how intensely engaged around the um, the science and the clinical development plans um, our bankers were. That was something that um, maybe it was just my ignorance, and maybe everyone says, well, of course they would be. Um, but I was really impressed with the depth of discussion that we had, and I really felt that we were on this collective journey to take the company public. It wasn't just mm -hmm. the management of the company. There really was this investment, um, that's the wrong word, uh, <laughs> a commitment um, um, from everyone who was involved in the process. And I think if I'd realized that earlier on, I might have leveraged it a bit sooner. Um, it, it, um, it was really only when I was sort of halfway through coming towards the end that, um, that I actually realized, actually, we are all doing this together. And I think it was that flip from, you know, pitching and asking for help and asking someone to be on your team to then realizing actually they are on your team now and actually let's use them and, and move forward. So um, I would say enjoy the process. It's, it sounds really onerous. Um, it's not, there's a system, there's, you know, it's you just have to deliver your pieces of the puzzle and um, enjoy the process as it, as it goes along. Absolutely, a lot of storytelling and how to put the story together in a clear, cohesive way. That makes a lot of sense. So maybe let's move to the next chapter and, and maybe double click a bit more into the, the acquisition, the M&A, the partnership with Merck and how that, the genesis of that and kind of how that's been uh, unfolding over the last little while. Yeah, so we um, were very active in talking with potential um, partners in pharma right from the get-go. We felt that we had a platform and anyone who's in a platform company knows that you have opportunity for um, leveraging the platform and using it in areas that maybe are not your primary area of focus. So we'd been very active um, from the get-go. So we had conversations with Merck um, from very early on when we were still PowerPoint slides and no data. As I mentioned, we didn't have any science and and so from very early, we had talked with Merck. And we had very regular conversations. Um, but And there was interest, but there was just never enough um, to seal the deal. It was always, uh, well, actually, Merck had a lot of interest in us. We weren't ready to sort of sell the firstborn child um, without, you know, thinking about it a little bit more. So the conversation sort of really heated up actually when we were doing our Series B fundraising and um, there was a lot of interest then and uh, this is all public information around um, uh, so if you want to look it up in the 14 D9, you can see all the, um, the details around um, Merck um, making an offer um, for the program and then offers to um, uh, invest, uh, offers to acquire the program, et cetera, et cetera. And each time we just felt that we couldn't give up this program that we felt had um, immense value. And it's really hard. And we had a lot of discussions in the management team with the board. You know, at what point do you sort of say, have the confidence to say no? And we did. We kept saying, no, this isn't quite good enough. We think that this um, asset has more value. We think it's got a lot of potential. It was an aisle to mutine, which um, activates Tregs, and so we felt it had opportunity across many different autoimmune diseases. Um, so we kept saying no, kept saying no, and Merck kept coming back and doing more diligence and making an offer, and we said no. And then finally, um, it, as it comes down to, you uh, you know have an offer that you can't refuse. So it was definitely bittersweet for me. This was um, my baby. Um, I felt that we were 
barely toddling and we hadn't had opportunity to um, bond and grow um, um, as I thought. The company was, um, so we existed as a company for four years and one day. Um, so it really was um, very, very quick. I think what's great is uh, seeing how Merck have jumped on the program um, with an asset that has potential across so many different autoimmune diseases. It is in much better hands in a large company who can run parallel clinical trials than it would have been in our hands where we would have been stuck running serial um, clinical trials. So um, it was exciting to generate our data and I'm proud that we generated um, our first clinical data and that was really what um, sealed the deal and uh, made Merck um, much more aggressive about acquiring the asset and the rest of the platform. A really incredible story. I could go on and ask questions forever, but for the last few minutes, I want to open it up for questions from the audience, both live and also virtually. So the team will have it a way to beam to me directly for those who are on online. So any questions from the audience? Can hear me. We have two standing mics, on obviously, on the other side of this table. So feel free to line up at any time. And I'll, I have a lot, so I'll, I'll jump in, and if people kind of come up, they can definitely come up. Um, and so, so Joe, um, life after acquisition, you're obviously taking on a new adventure. Uh, tell me about kind of your thinking in Genesis over, you know, what was next after the Pandian kind of journey. Yeah, so I think, um, what is it, the seven stages of grief? So after <laughs> the excitement of the acquisition and then being very sad that this was my baby and then having to, you know, work with others to do things how I wouldn't have done things, I definitely was on an emotional roller coaster. And um, and I would say the emotional roller coaster probably only lasted um, a few weeks um, when I started uh, having conversations. And I guess there was this assumption from many people that um, I would either retire or just work on boards. Um, I am on a number of um, on boards and I certainly enjoy that work, but I wasn't really ready to hang up my dance shoes. And so that then opened the um, Pandora box of, well, what will I do next? And, um, and in what role and with what science? Um, and so I actually had the luxury of being um, six months at Merck, so it allowed me to turn everyone away for six months while I said I can't do anything, I, I work at Merck, and, and so I didn't have to um, get too engaged in conversations that allowed me to regroup, um, think about what I wanted to do, and starting another company is, um, it, it was so much fun the first time, <laughs> um, just want to jump in and do it again and, and again. Amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, one question incoming virtually from David Portman. What tipped Pandian towards an IPO versus staying private with a Series B? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I have to say that there is a lot of herd mentality. There's a lot of, um, you know, excitement about, or especially in 2020, um, there was a lot of excitement about this IPO window being open. And, and I would say that, you know, there's there's pros and cons. I think, you know, getting the um, additional funding to really be able to expand um, your vision at the company, especially with a platform company, was exciting. Um, and I think that was probably a big driver in um, what pushed us towards the um, IPO process. So, but it's, um, you know, there's definitely a lot of debate. What's, what's better? Um, I've enjoyed it. Um, would I've enjoyed it if we stayed private? Um, probably. <laughs> Great. Well, let's thank Joe. Uh, this is incredible to hear her story. Uh, thanks so much, Joe. Wonderful.